Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Professor Wolf will be with us, Richard Wolf, about the deficit and the debt and why we should or should not care about these things. I wanted to start out with, you know, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Afghanistan. This has uh, just, you know, the situation continues to be a cluster as the American media rightly continues to focus on the fact that Donald Trump cut this deal about a year ago with the Taliban, guaranteeing them that by May 1st, there would be no more Americans in Afghanistan. And, you know, basically surrendered the entire country to the Taliban, closed 10 Air Force bases, you know, basically neutered our ability to, to do a, 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 a rational withdrawal and then just basically sat on it, particularly after the election, after he lost the election in November, you know, for another two months, it refused to allow the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration, to even get security briefings from the Pentagon on what was going on. So when the Biden administration came into, into power on the 20th or the 21st of January, really the 21st was their full, first full day, they were just beginning the process of looking around going, what's going on here? Now that said, that was what, seven months ago? And they frankly should have gotten a hell of a lot more people out before the withdrawal. Now, you know, the Biden administration moved it back from May to August. But, you know, I, th I think that there, I think it's appropriate that there be some criticism directed at them, and they're taking a lot of incoming fire on this, and it looks like they're trying to make it right, but it may be too late. And there's gonna be thousands of people. And then, and then, of course, as I pointed out yesterday, over here in the United States, now we have Fox News, you know, being uh, led by uh, Laura Ingram and, and uh, Tucker Carlson, going all hysterical about the possibility that tens of thousands or maybe even a hundred thousand brown people from Afghanistan might become immigrants to the United States. Oh my God! Over on the right-wing sites, my newsletter today from therighting.com, 
Uh, the NOQ report, the headline, Kamala is quietly shopping the cabinet for the 25th Amendment. Right? <laughs> you know, there was a serious discussion about this around Donald Trump when he would just like go off the rails. But, uh, you know, anyhow, the Washington Times, the headline, it's time to impeach Biden. Uh, the Daily Signal, America is experiencing a crisis of confidence in Biden. The uh, Rasmussen Reports, which is a polling organization, their headline, and this is really grim news, and it's why I think that we need to keep pointing out, Donald Trump set up this disaster. Yes, the Biden administration could have handled the withdrawal better, but there was the Trump administration that set this thing up. That's why the, the, the Afghan military vanished, was because of the deal that Trump cut with the Taliban with the leader of the Taliban that he had ordered out of prison. But anyhow, the headline over at Rasmussen reports, voters blame Biden, not Trump, for Taliban takeover. So that's, you know, the right-wing spin on all this. And then we get former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. She was our ambassador to the United Nations, uh, I believe, during the time that Donald Trump was negotiating and, and uh, Mike Pompeo were negotiating this deal with the Taliban. When they walked up to, you know, they went to the they went to Pakistan first of all and said, "Let out, you know, let out a prison." The the head of the of the Taliban, this this mullah, let him out, and then they negotiated directly with him. And said, "We surrender. We're going to leave Afghanistan. We're going to give you everything." Trump closed down ten air force bases. And, and, you know, the Taliban was like, cool, thank you for the planes, thank you for the military equipment, thank you for the repair equipment, thank you for these nice airports that you built. So then Nikki Haley, who was our UN ambassador, tweets yesterday, to have our generals say they are depending on diplomacy with the Taliban is an unbelievable scenario. Negotiating with the Taliban is like dealing with the devil. Oh, really, Nikki? I, you know, somebody replied saying, how stupid do you have to be to tweet something like this? Uh, it's just, I'm, uh, actually, that's from an article over at crooksandliars.com. Uh, uh, Fred Wellman replies with a tweet. Uh, by the way, a great thread about this by Babylon's sister over at DU. Um, uh, Fred Wellman responds with a tweet. Uh, you do know we all saw you at the U.N. working for Trump, Right. Do you think we're going to magically forget your administration did, in fact, negotiate with the Taliban and released 5,000 prisoners while driving, dra drawing down our forces? Jeff Tiedrich replied to Nikki Haley, cool story, Nix. Just curious, when Trump was arranging for 5,000 Taliban warriors to be released from prison, was that a negotiation? Or did he just skip to the end and say yes without getting anything in return? Which is a really interesting point. John Ratcliffe, who was Donald Trump's national security advisor at the time, went on Fox News yesterday and said that Donald Trump, he said, quote, and I remember President Trump saying, I don't think the last two days, speaking of the Afghan military. In other words, Trump knew how this was going to play out and was fine with it. Ratcliffe says, we had that intelligence when I was director of national intelligence, when I was DNI. They knew this was going to go down this way, Donald Trump. They knew it. I mean, it was obvious. I mean, when you, when you negotiate a surrender, which is what Donald Trump did, how do you think it's going to play out? 
And it was already a done deal when Biden came into office. Trump had already closed 10 Air Force bases. He had already turned over most of Afghanistan to the Taliban. Pretty much all that hadn't fallen was Kabul. And who was making all these negotiations happen? Well, the point man was, was uh, Mike Pompeo, our Secretary of State, the former, uh, you know, cokehead uh, congressman from Kansas, who now wants to be the senator from Kansas, or maybe the governor of Kansas. I think he's running for senator. And this, uh, a brilliant piece by Alex Henderson over at alternate.org, scathing Kansas City editorial slams disingenuous partisan Mike Pompeo for total hypocrisy over Afghanistan. This is the Kansas City Star editorial board wrote yesterday, quote, Pompeo personally oversaw the Trump administration's Afghanistan withdrawal discussions with Taliban co-founder Abdul Ghani Baradar, whom the CIA had arrested in 2010. He'd been in a Pakistani prison until Trump got him out two years ago. So it's a little bit stunning to watch Pompeo accuse Biden of leading by weakness by finishing the troop withdrawal that Trump planned to accomplish even more quickly. Pompeo, they note, however, is blaming Biden, this is Alex Henderson, is blaming Biden for embracing Trump-era policy that he aggressively promoted. And the lead newspaper in Pompeo's own state, where Pompeo is trying to build his political future, is having none of it. And a fine thing it is. There's plenty of blame to go around. But let's look at first causes. George W. Bush could have negotiated the arrest of bin Laden. Instead, he wanted to have a war to get reelected. And Donald Trump then ended the war by surrendering. That's what happened. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm just so over it with presidents lying us into wars and, and, and then the disasters that follow. And welcome back. Pete in San Bernardino, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Pete, what's on your mind today? Tom, what, wasn't there a connection between uh, Afghanistan and the opium poppies? Oh, yeah. It is. Uh, selling opium is the major source of revenue for the Taliban, has been forever. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. The single largest source of income. In fact, there was a, a, a fascinating report on CNN this morning about how uh, you know the, the the Kabul government or the the, the Afghan the, the official Afghan government which has fallen now um, was receiving 80 percent of their funding from the United States and people are saying oh well you know the Taliban is screwed because the U.S. is no longer passing that money along and then you know this analyst comes along and says no the Taliban's doing just fine thank you very much they've got a, a lucrative opium poppy production and uh, you know opium sale business. And on top of that, they're running extortion and kidnapping, you know, uh, for money uh, operations like the like the one I saw when I was in Bogota, Colombia, back 20 years ago. So yeah, so what's going on? So so thank you, Tom. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to remind people of that of that connection. Yeah, well, you did a great the pharmaceutical job. Pharmaceutical company that 
the pharmaceutical company that's that that's being sued right now for all the uh, deaths that they've caused. What what, what pharmaceutical company is that? Um, it's the Sackler family. The company was Purdue yeah, Pharma. Right, right. Yeah. Pharma. Uh, but what what's the company name? Purdue Pharma. So, Purdue. Pete, thanks a lot for the call. Frank in Thompson Falls, Montana. Hey, Frank, what's on your mind? Uh, you've pretty much covered everything that uh, I was going to say, except for the fact that the head of the Afghani government took $169 million and fled to uh, Abu Dhabi. Right. Literally an airplane that, f- packed fill, uh, filled with $100 bills. It was right. literally and packed yesterday, with cash. Yesterday, there was a soldier that was on Stephanie Miller that said that they were on the tarmac and they... Uh, Afghani soldiers couldn't even get water because the the Afghani government wasn't paying them and wouldn't give them any supplies. So the American soldiers were giving them some of their water. So what are you supposed to do as far as fighting back if you don't have any supplies or any income? Right, right. Yeah, and and this is all the stuff that Donald Trump negotiated and put into place and Joe Biden inherited. Although, again, I mean, you know, I just want to qualify that by saying he should have started getting our people out in February. I mean, he took power and he took office in January. Within a few weeks, they should have started getting people out of that country. And I I don't think it would have led to a stampede. And another uh, question. Go ahead. Another another question I have is I know that why it's happening, but why can't we get corporate media to take and talk about all the things that you are talking about, about, you know, what they did to lead up to this debacle and, uh, you know, yeah. the president closing down all the air bases and stuff like that. All they want to do is play the blame game and blame it on Biden. They're, you know, they're doing what the media always does. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. If you've got a gory picture, you, you run with it. It doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't matter the history. It's like this is the shiny object right now. And the shiny object is people, you know, hanging on to the wheel wells of airplanes as they're trying to take off. Um, the more they can show the desperation, the better, you know, it, it looks for their ratings or whatever. It's, it's very unfortunate, Frank, and it's a sad commentary on the state of our media right now. Frank, thanks a lot for calling. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. I'm reading from Chapter 4, titled An Army of One. Two years after the incident at Cape May, Bo's failure still ate at him. He never told his parents what had happened. The day they shipped me out, a thought occurred to me, and it stayed in my mind whenever I thought about the Coast Guard, he told General Dahl, and that was that I wanted to fix that. Those who knew him knew Bo was struggling with something. He would never say what it was, but the tension was plain. He spent more and more time in his room at Anna's. There was no bed, no couch, no TV, but on his days off from work, he stayed there, sometimes for days at a time. Fontaine and her other new roommate heard him yelling at himself. I can't believe you did that. That was so stupid. Some of his friends worried, but Bo never complained, and around men in particular, he carried himself with stoic severity. Women saw a more concerning aspect. In the Harrison's kitchen, one of Kim's friends grabbed his hand, flipped his forearm over to reveal the neat rows of cuts. You have such nice arms, she said. What the heck are you doing to yourself? I'm getting ready, he told her. What are you getting ready for? Pain. Bo, what on earth are you talking about? I'm just getting ready. 
Enough time had passed where I got uncomfortable again with not doing something that was making a difference, he told Dahl years later. His parents put him in touch with their pastor from Boise, Phil Proctor, who is ministering with seminary students in northeastern Uganda. Bo told his parents it sounded interesting. He could go to East Africa and teach villagers self-defense techniques. But the timing didn't work out. All the seminary spots were taken. That spring, Bo's seeking came full circle. He remembered meeting another Coast Guard washout who told him that if he wanted to, he could re-enlist. The Army was stressed for new warm bodies. His family knew he had been thinking about it. Whatever you do, don't join the Army, his sister and Albrecht told him. It was a bit of the old Army-Navy rivalry coming through, but Skye also believed that the Navy took care of its own in a way that the Army never had. His mother agreed, but didn't think Bo would actually enlist. Days later, when she saw him on the highway driving back from Twin Falls in his motorcycle, she knew that he had. At the Army recruiting station, Bo was a young man in a hurry. He told the recruiter that he wanted to become a scout, a soldier who takes risky missions to track down enemy positions. The recruiter told him there were no more slots available for scouts, but that he had three openings in the infantry, which would fill up fast if Bergdahl didn't act quick. He offered him a $5,000 signing bonus to sweeten the deal. In the spring of 2008, the Army had lowered its recruiting standards to levels not seen since the end of the draft. Five years earlier, at the start of the Iraq War, 94% of new recruits had high school diplomas. By 2005, that number had dropped to 71%. New soldiers with what the Army defined as Category 4 intelligence, those who scored in the 30th percentile or below, were accepted. As Iraq burned, their numbers rose, rising from just six one-hundredths of a percent of new recruits and up to 4%. Convicted felons could secure a waiver from a sympathetic officer, and they were accepted too. Physical fitness standards dropped. Recruiters fudged paperwork and coached problem cases like Bergdahl through background checks. His Coast Guard diagnosis was no longer disqualifying. He simply signed a form prepared by his recruiter stating that he had overcome his earlier issues. Bergdahl's waiver was approved in late May 2008, and he was issued orders to Fort Benning, Georgia, for Infantry One Station Unit training, where civilians were turned into infantrymen. His parents didn't take the news as badly as Bo had feared. Janney was relieved that he would no longer be traveling the world alone. Bob thought the structured life would do him good. Reading the news at the time, he also believed that the Taliban was on the run and the risk of serious combat was low. He's barely going to get in on the war in Afghanistan, Bob recalled thinking at the time. It's almost over. Kim and her brother took it much worse. Mark Ferris's heart sank at the news. The last they had talked, Bo was planning a two-week wilderness trip in the Yellowstone River in a sea kayak. It was a wild idea and would be a rough trip, but Ferris thought it could work. The Army would not work. If there was a human being unfit for the Army who should never have joined the Army, it was Bo, said Ferris. He was naive, idealistic, good-spirited, a very gentle person, and a gentle soul. Anna Fontaine was equally concerned. Why was this a better idea than the Coast Guard? You tried this before. It didn't work. Why are you putting yourself through this again? Bo told her he was older now and had matured. I was naive then, he said. I now know what to expect. Anna had grown up in the South near Army bases and told him he wouldn't like the rough culture. It didn't matter. He was dead set on it, she said. He was gung-ho. Her parting words to him were, keep your head down, don't be a hero. During two weeks of in-processing as an infantry trainee at the Army's 30th Adjutant General Reception Battalion, Bergdahl learned that the Army didn't care for his feelings, his opinions, or his time. He stood in one line after another for physical exams, for drawing equipment, and for having his head shaved. His free time was spent in an open bay starship barracks filled with bunk beds and his fellow recruits. 
2nd Battalion, 58th Infantry, House of Pain, was one of six training battalions on Sand Hill, a section of Fort Benning reserved for basic training. Each battalion was led by a lieutenant colonel. Within the battalions were six companies, each led by a captain and a first sergeant. There were four platoons in each company led by drill sergeants. And the book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. On the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, including his latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf with two Fs. He also has a website, rdwolf with two Fs.com. Uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back, and, and thanks so much for joining us again. The Republicans and some of the so-called conservative Democrats are out there just freaking out about the national debt, um, uh, particularly with regard to the three and a half trillion dollar uh, infrastructure bill. Um, I, I think a, a lot of the time when those of us in the media talk about the debt, the deficit, the impact of it, uh, you know, how it might or might not cause inflation, all these things, we, we assume a level of knowledge that most people probably don't actually have. Could you, as, as a professor of economics, could you give us a little uh, primer or primer on on what is what is the deficit, what is the debt, what is the impact impact of that debt, and and thoughts on this whole modern monetary theory that really the debt is 
savings, that you have to have a certain amount of national debt, that when Andrew Jackson you know, paid off the entire national debt back in the 1830s, it produced the longest and deepest depression in American history, because there was no safe place for people or government to store money um, you know, in, in treasuries, and that you know, there is actually an upside to having a national debt. So let me just toss all that in your lap, Professor. Okay, yes, it isn't all that complicated. Uh, before I start, though, there is just a word. It's shameless what the, what the Republicans are doing. Not that the Democrats are all that much better, but the Republicans, this occasional decision that the national debt is a big problem, when the biggest boost to it was the tax cut of December 2017 and last year's uh, deficit budget by Mr. Trump, I mean, it, 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 it really boggles the mind that they can get away with this. But having said that, let me answer your question. First, the deficit. Very simple. The government of the United States in Washington, D.C. has to spend money on a whole host of things. The military, Social Security, maintaining roads and bridges, more or less and a whole host of other programs that touch all of us. The way that the government gets the money to spend is by doing one of two things, taxing us, that means we have to give them money, end of story, or borrowing the money from us. The deficit is the amount of money borrowed. In other words, it's simply the difference between the amount of money raised in taxes by Washington relative to the amount of money they spend. If they spend more than what they raise in taxes, there's a deficit. And by the way, if you're interested, if they spend less than they raise in taxes, which has happened, that's called a budgetary surplus. Number two now, the debt. The debt of the United States is the total of all of the deficits our government has ever run, minus whatever portion of that deficit the government paid back. So it's really the, de the deficit is your annual borrowing, and the debt is the total sum of all of that borrowing. Now we get to the question, what are the consequences of a deficit? And here's where... Um, ignorance and malevolence meet because the answer to that question is not possible because what the impact of a deficit is or what the impact of a national debt is depends on all the other things going on in the economy at the same time because they will determine more than the size of the debt or the size of the deficit what the impact will be. That's why when people either tell you the deficit will cause X or with equal confidence the deficit will not cause X, both of them are nuts and shouldn't be taken seriously because they think all of the other things that influence the outcome somehow don't matter, and that's never been true. And I'll give you the simplest example because that's what's in the news. Sometimes when the government uh, runs a deficit and accumulates a debt, it has the consequence of producing rising prices and inflation. That's right. 
But there are many examples of the government running a deficit and building up the debt when there's no inflation as a result, which, by the way, was the case for years after the Great Recession of 2008 and 9. The lesson there is not that it's either yes or no deficits cause inflation. The answer is to recognize what all economics teaches, which is a deficit is simply one of many ongoing events in an economy, and whatever happens after you run a deficit depends as much on all of those other things as it does on the deficit itself. What are your thoughts on the, on the modern monetary theory proposal that um, because the Constitution gives the Treasury, not the Fed, which didn't exist back then, but the Treasury Department, gives the Treasury Department the right to uh, coin, to, to, to mint coins and to determine their value that the Treasury could mint, say, 20 $1 trillion platinum coins, say that they're worth a trillion dollars each, and then cash those coins in with the Fed and pay down the national debt, but, you know, buy, buy a bunch of our bonds with those coins or however they do it, I don't know. Um, it, it, it seems a little too slick by half, but I, you know, I've had people who explain this stuff on this program, and, and I can't punch holes in their argument. Tell me about your thoughts on this. Sure. Let's make sure we all understand how this game is played. The responsibility of funding the government is in the hands of the U.S. Treasury. They're the ones who collect the taxes we pay, who borrow when that's necessary, and who then pay out the checks uh, to pay for what the government undertakes. So the Treasury handles a deficit as follows. If the government's going to spend more than it takes in, 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 in taxes, it's the Treasury that issues a kind of security. They're called Treasury securities. And depending on how, for how long this borrowing goes on, they're either a Treasury bill or a Treasury bond. These names don't matter so much. But think of it as IOUs, pieces of paper, very carefully printed, that say that if you lend money to the government, they will give you in exchange one of these IOUs, paying you interest for the number of years that this debt is for, and paying you back at the end. Now, of course, anybody can hold the Treasury security. They will have given their money to the federal government as a loan, and they will now be the proud possessor of the Treasury security. But, and here's the crucial thing, they don't have to do that. These Treasury securities are negotiable. That means you can buy and sell them. And what huge lenders to the United States government normally do, and I'm talking here about banks, large corporations, insurance companies, the big player in lending money to the government, what they usually do is turn around and sell that security Often within minutes of buying it from the Treasury, they resell it to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve uses its own right to print new money to buy those things. So that's why the Federal Reserve is one of the largest holders of U.S. Treasuries in the world, because it has been printing money and pumping it into the economy by buying the debt 
that is issued by the Treasury. The minute you understand that, you can see why modern monetary theory asks the question, why are we going through this crazy two-step? Why not let the government, the Treasury and the Fed together, simply print money and use it to let the government do the things we want it to do? Because if you did that, there'd be no debts. There'd be none of this crazy anxiety, and it's very expensive to boot, to go through this indirection of having the Treasury borrow it, only to see the people it borrows from turn around and sell those securities right off to the Fed and bringing new money into the economy that way. And the, MT, the modern monetary theory are quite right. The government could do that. There's no problem. The only reason we don't have the government do it is that when we have in the past, as we have, allowed governments to do that, it never took very long before people took over the government, right-wingers, left-wingers, in between, and abused the money-printing power Mm. in ways that made people freak out. And so this device was developed, make them go through this two-step process, which basically allows banks, insurance companies, and big corporations to have an outsized influence, because if they're not willing to lend to the, to the Treasury, this game can't be played. But of course, for the mass of people, this is a shenanigan among the people who run our economy. All the rest of it are left out because there really is little to no democratic control over how any of this is handled. Wow. So should we be printing trillion dollar coins or not? Well, I think the problem is whether we go through the two steps I've described Mm. or whether we shift over to modern monetary theory. The only real difference is all of the yowling, usually by people who have an ulterior motive, and they're mostly Republicans, this periodic, convenient yowling over the deficit would stop because the government's spending of money <laughs> would not involve borrowing. And that would blow They so wouldn't have that argument. Right, but that, I'm sure those folks could find other arguments. Right. That would blow up Jude Wininsky's strategy that he put in the, in the, Washington, or in the, uh, the Wall Street Journal back in the 1970s that Reagan adopted where he said, you know, Republicans going forward, what they should do is whenever they have power, they should spend money like drunken sailors. And then as soon as Democrats come into power, they should scream about the national debt. And they literally... And that's what they've done. That's exactly that's right. What they've they have done. literally adopted... Ju- he called it the two Santa Claus theory. He said the, the, the Democrats get to play Santa Claus with Social Security and unions and minimum wage. Republicans need to play Santa Claus with tax cuts and, 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 making sh- and, and force the Democrats to shoot their own Santa Claus by screaming about the debt so that the Democrats are forced to stop spending money. It was brilliant, and it's still going on, as you said. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf.com, uh, Prof Wolf over on Twitter. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Always great talking to you. I always learn something. Thank you. Oh, my. Okay, so uh, Afghanistan. 
You know, I think that it's really important that we understand what happened here. George W. Bush lied us into a war. Donald Trump uh, surrendered to the Taliban, released the Taliban commander, released 5,000 of their most vigorous fighters, put them back into the base, turned over 10 of our Air Force bases to them, and basically walked away from it, telling his director of national intelligence that the government would fall within two days. But it wasn't going to happen when he was president. He was going to hand this whole mess off to Joe Biden, prepackaged. Here, Joe, it's a nice little birthday cake. Just ignore that ticking sound. Topic one. Topic two, what's going on in Florida? I mean, this is just crazy what's going on down in Florida. The Miami-Dade school board uh, just yesterday afternoon decided to defy uh, Governor Death Sentence, uh, DeSantis, excuse me. They, they are going to have a mask mandate for the start of this year because the parents want it. Now, yeah, they had a bunch of crazy asshats show up there, too, with their pre-printed signs. It looks like Betsy DeVos and some of her people are in on this. We had, you know, we had this person from the International Women's Forum on yesterday uh, talking about how, um, you know, how important it is not to mask children in school. And I'm like, is this part of the plan to destroy our public school system? And then, and then I was reading this piece over on Daily Kos yesterday about how Betsy DeVos and some of her billionaire buddies who hate public schools are like jumping in with two feet. I don't know if there's a connection between the two. Uh, you know, if IWF is in this, or if this is just all over the the right wingosphere, right? But uh, hey, let's let's infect our teachers. Ron DeSantis is playing political games with a deadly virus. The uh, Miami-Dade mayor, uh, Daniela Levine-Cava, said protecting, uh, praised this uh, school board decision, said protecting our children must be our top priority. I applaud the Miami-Dade school board for following the science and putting the health and well-being of our children first. It was a seven-to-one vote as people were chanting, unmask our kids, unmask our kids. A medical task force that the school, school district, the, the Miami-Dade school district had employed uh, unanimously recommended a mask mandate. Unanimously. And new polling from Ipsos Axios shows 69% of Americans support in-school mask mandates. My point in my op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com, Medicare for All will stop boss men from playing political games with deadly diseases for political gain. The point of that is that when you look at those countries that have national health care systems where everybody's in, everybody's protected, the country isn't overrun by disease, or when it is, people don't go bankrupt. They, 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 they can get help. You don't have politicians playing these kind of political games that DeSantis and Abbott are playing. Because you have a, a, a central voice. I mean, the closest we've got to this right now is Fauci, right? And or or the CDC. Fauci's not with the CDC. He's with the uh, uh, what is it? And National Institutes of Health, but it's a, a subdivision that has to do with the, you know infectious diseases. In any case, the uh, national healthcare system, like every other developed country in the world, has, well, sort of with the exception of Switzerland, a national healthcare system gives a voice, a national voice to healthcare. And make sure that we that America would stop having bankruptcies. 
We've gone from a half a million bankruptcies to 700,000 last year. We're probably going to hit a million this year, all because of COVID. Not all because of COVID, but about half of them because of COVID. This is a disaster. If there was ever an argument for Medicare for all, that argument is what's going on right now. When everybody is protected with health, health insurance and health care, when everybody is protected, then you have a public health system as well as an individual health system. When you've got, you know, when you rely on for-profit corporations to provide health insurance to people, and they skim so much money off the top that people like Dollar Bill McGuire, the former CEO of United Healthcare, can literally walk away with more than a billion dollars. His, his successor, Stephen J. Hemsley, walking away with hundreds of millions of dollars. When you've got a system like that, you end up with massive numbers of people who are underinsured or uninsured. And this is why this Family USA study found uh, roughly one out of every three COVID deaths are linked to health insurance gaps. Nearly four, more than 40% of all COVID infections are associated with health insurance gaps. By February 2021, 10.9 million infections and 143,000 deaths were associated with health insurance gaps. This is not happening in Canada. This is not happening in the United Kingdom. It's not happening in France or in Germany or in Spain or in Italy or in Denmark or Norway or Sweden or Finland. It's only happening here. It's time for Medicare for all, as I lay out in my new book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Which, by the way, is a great toolkit for Medicare for all activists. That's why I wrote it. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Tom Harbin here with you, and uh, let's uh, pick up some of your phone calls here. Lynn in Kansas City, Kansas. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I wondered if you watched Lawrence O'Donnell Tuesday night. I did he not. He seemed to, oh, you need to go back and watch it. He really explained and gave a completely different viewpoint than all the other pundits out there 
first of all, Biden started asking people, the Americans, to leave in February, offered to pay their tickets to get them out of there. And most of them refused to leave, didn't want to go yet, hmm. wanted to see how things were going to work out. Was and this, also, was this contractors or people who were like working for aid organizations or, or, or what? The embassy and contractors, yes. Huh. And various organizations, you know, uh, help, you know. Uh, so if, if, if the contractors didn't one. leave, why didn't he cut off their contracts? Yeah. Stop well, the money. I'm just saying there's all <laughs> kinds of more going on than just Biden's a screw up. Yeah, no, I get that. I you get know, that. I mean, I am so tired of everybody bashing Biden here. And Lawrence put a good argument out on it doesn't matter if we started to leave February or August, the exact same thing was going to happen. Oh, yeah. It didn't matter when any of this started. It was going to go the way it's going. And and so whether Biden you're... isn't dragging his feet or screwing up or anything else. It's how it goes. It's how occupying a country and then leaving goes. I think that's a good point, Lynn. And and it's uh, I'll I'll try to make it more often. The, the simple reality is that we're drawing arbitrary lines. Um, where, you know, there, there's an estimated two million people in Afghanistan who in one way or another have worked with, collaborated with or interacted with the American military over the last 20 years. And, yep, and, and they're not all making it out. And, and there's about 80,000 <laughs> who have been direct employees of the United States government. Um, the rest yep. of that, you know, going up to the two million were people who were working peripherally with contractors or, you know, whatever, the local mm -hmm. businesses that were supplying food and things. So where yep. do you draw the line? How, you know, the Taliban's going to go after as many of those people as they can. And, and how do you get them out and how do you identify them? And, and the Biden administration back in February started this plan with these uh, special uh, visas, uh, these SID visas, I think they're called, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and trying to identify people and getting them out. But the State Department was running really like molasses on this. And, yeah, because and, it was depleted well and it's complex administration and, and and the main thing is that most of the people applying for these waivers for these visa waivers had to demonstrate that they had actually worked for a u.s contractor and a lot of these contractors right. were phony baloney <laughs> yeah. companies that were created oh, by outrageous. you know wealthy yeah. defense contractors they would they would set up a a shell corporation essentially so that uh, if there was any liability, you know, if they if their workers committed war crimes or atrocities or things, they could simply bankrupt the corporation and walk away with the profits. And that's exactly what happened. There's all kinds yeah. of defense companies, so-called defense contractors that were created during those 20 years that literally went out of business in the last six months. And so yeah. there was nobody for these people in Afghanistan, these Afghan uh, citizens who had worked with these contractors. There was nobody for them to contact to prove that they had actually worked for an American contractor because the contractor didn't exist anymore. And a lot of the other contractors, these big defense contractors, were just taking their sweet time providing any kind of documentation. And so, you know, you've got this absolute cluster. I mean, it's totally predictable. And... Uh, I, you know, there's there is no easy answer here, Lynn. And there, other than don't go into countries in the first place. Number one, or number two, if you are going to declare a war on a country, George George W. Bush had his war on Afghanistan. It lasted three and a half weeks, and then the government fell. If you're going to declare war on a country after the government falls, 
declare your mission accomplished and get the hell out and help the country rebuild itself, you know, basically like we did with Germany and Japan. Now, I realize we still have troops in both those countries, but they're not there to police Germany or Japan. In both cases, we're there as allied troops to project force into the region, which is a completely different thing. And uh, it, you know, very few people are talking about this, you know, in, in these terms. And that that kind of analysis just doesn't, largely doesn't even exist in the in the in the mainstream media. How badly George W. Bush screwed this up in the first seven years, and and then you know, obviously, you know, what Trump did cutting his deal with the Taliban. It's just terrible. Um, Lynn, thank you for the call, and thank you for pointing that out. I'll have to uh, go back and see what Lawrence had to say. David in San Francisco. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Um, you know uh, that old expression about when life gives you lemons, uh, make lemonade? Right. Well, if you think about it, we have a great opportunity to avoid a super spreader, help rebuild Afghanistan, help calm the situation down, and make sure that uh, this epidemic, you know, all of these people scrambling to climb on a, on a plane in a jammed, crowded plane in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Uh, I mean, good. what could, yeah. So uh, I've been testing this, uh, like, field researching by calling some right-wing shows this morning, uh, specifically down in Texas. And asking, uh, well, you know, if you all don't want to take the vaccine, how about we ship it over to Afghanistan as a peace offering? Mm -hmm. And that uh, since it would take a week to take effect, uh, their hotels could be filled uh, and they could sell a whole bunch of meals and hotel rooms for a solid week uh, with people trying to get out. And they would self-quarantine down in there. And uh, the vaccines, of course, would be available to the people of Afghanistan, too. And if the health department of uh, Kabul or Afghanistan in Tota uh, want to take advantage of this opportunity, you know, pick a non-biased agency, you know, as the United Nations Health so, Organization. So what kind of response have you gotten, David, from, from calling? Well, they, just as I expected, they can have it. Really? Send the yeah. vaccine to Afghanistan. Amazing! What a what a yeah. fascinating uh, what a fascinating it, it, take. It, it was since it's going to go bad over here anyway. Yeah, well, uh, and this is happening. There, although there. we are starting to pick up, but it is happening. David, thank you for the call. James in Manitoba, Canada. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Hey, how are you? I got a question to ask you. Um, how many years have the U.S. government uh, supplied? Uh, the training for the for the uh, uh, Afghani Afghanistan Army, and uh, is that not like uh, right a up failure? until summer of last year? Or me from from two thousand one or maybe early two thousand two? I mean, uh, I think we invaded in October. Where, so where is the Afghan? Where's Army now? As like you say, the were they not protecting their? It no longer country? exists. Yeah, Oh, so it's a dispersed type of thing in the Taliban what taking happened, over? What happened was last year when Donald Trump was president, he, he got the head of the Taliban out of prison in Pakistan and 5,000 yeah. of his worst fighters, sent them back to Afghanistan, uh, you know, put them on the battlefield, and then he negotiated a surrender with the head of the Taliban. Uh, we will simply give you the country. We're going to walk away. You can take everything. You can take our military equipment. You can do whatever you want. It's all yours. No, an unconditional surrender is what Donald Trump negotiated. It was, it was, it, let me just finish here, James. It was supposed to happen on May 1st or in, 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 by, be done by May of this year. Biden came into office in January, January 20th. 
who looked at the situation and said, this is going to take more than just a few months, February, March, April, May. It's going to take, you know, so we're going to move this back, this deadline back to August and began reaching out to Americans in Afghanistan and trying to get them out. I, you know, my personal criticism or critique is that they weren't doing enough to try and get the other, you know, like the translators, people who had worked with us out. I, my guess is that they were looking at the political blowback, which they're getting right now. Oh my God, you're bringing 100,000 brown people to America? That's, you know, it was totally predictable. But in any case, and for whatever reason, um, that's what happened. But, but after Trump negotiated that surrender to the Taliban back a year and a half ago, after he negotiated that, the Taliban went to all of the, you know, to, I mean, literally local Taliban people all over the country went to the local army people who were employed by the, the Afghan government, the Ghani government that we had put up and that we were funding. We were providing 80% of their funding. We were paying these people and said, keep taking your money from the Afghan government. Keep taking that American money. You know, it's good for our communities and uh, get all the military equipment you can. And uh, when they pull out and they're going to because Trump just signed this deal, when they pull out on, you know, in May or Biden turned it back to August, then uh, just put down your weapons and uh, join us, become part of the Taliban. Or if you don't want to be a combatant, just put, you know, give us the weapons and just walk away. And that's literally exactly what happened just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, well, you have a great show. I, I, I love to listen to you guys all the, okay, all the time. Okay, well, thank you, James, and thanks for listening to us thank on SiriusXM up there in Canada. I appreciate the call. You know, it can't be said often enough. Donald Trump negotiated a complete surrender with the Taliban. And now Joe Biden, you know, was is stuck with it. He's, he's is trying to get us out. But, you know, let's be clear. Bush lied us into this war as part of his re-election strategy, and Trump screwed it up even You're worse. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman Book Club. We're reading today from the American Revolution of 1800, the original edition written by Dan Sisson, and I contributed to the updated version. And this is from the afterword, which I wrote. Uh, we're on page 220. And we've talked about the five criteria that Thomas Jefferson had that will provoke a revolution, and we'd already covered the first three of them. This is the final two. When Reagan came to power after 50 years of New Deal policies, America was among the most socially mobile of all the world's developed nations. After 30 years of Reaganomics, however, the United States is among the least socially mobile nations in the developed world. All of this suggests a revolution could be brewing. Jefferson's final two criteria for a revolution were the people's understanding of their relationship to the constitutional powers present in the government of the day and even of the hour, and the degree of liberty expressed in a declaration of rights toward which the revolution aims. Once again, we find the vast majority of the people frustrated. In 1976, in the Supreme Court case Buckley v. Vallejo, the court discovered in the First Amendment an explicit protection for money and its uses, particularly with regard to politics. Two years later, in the case of First National Bank v. Bilotti, the Supreme Court found that the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War to give equal protection rights to corporations. Most Americans had never noticed the word money in the First Amendment, or indeed anywhere in the Constitution itself, and most Americans thought the Civil War was largely fought to free the slaves, not the transnational corporations. But there it was. And the Supreme Court brought these two decisions together in a big way in 2010 in its Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission ruling. 
Corporations were now persons, even humans, and money is no longer property, but it has become free speech. To add insult to injury, both major political parties have spent much of the past 30 years promoting so-called free trade deals that have added vast power to corporations to not only send American jobs overseas, but even to sue individual states or cities that might act in ways to prevent it. And the revelations by Edward Snowden and others that the U.S. government was treating its citizens' privacy with contempt have revealed most of all how much our Constitution has been eroded. Many Americans are asking, what happened? Without privacy, how can one have private thoughts? How can democracy even exist? These are what the First and Fourth Amendments were supposed to guarantee and protect. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, those Americans who sounded the alarm about rising inequality, the loss of manufacturing jobs, and disappearing civil liberties were largely regarded as the fringe. Although Ross Perot, running on these fringe issues, captured nearly 20% of the vote in 1992. People were starting to wake up back then. Americans began to see as corporations and the very wealthy acquired increasing rights and powers, that their own individual rights under the Constitution were being rapidly diminished. And the degree of liberty they experienced was in a downward spiral, both politically and economically. Today, the rise of grassroots movements on both the right and the left, the Tea Party and Occupy, are ample evidence of revolutionary pressures. Jefferson's observations have been borne out over and over again throughout American history and the history of the world. And now his prescience about revolution confronts us. Not only have political parties sealed their lock on America's political system, but the power of faction, the faction of corporate and multi-generational wealth, have been cemented into place by our Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the founding notion that our government was to be a force for good, fully representing the will and needs of we the people, is ridiculed as a matter of policy by one of our two national parties. The ideals of majority rule, principled compromise, and collaboration and cooperation have been discarded in favor of a relentless effort to destroy the opposing party and its standard bearer. James Madison must be rolling over in his grave. And Thomas Jefferson, were he alive today, would be saying, I warned you, even the high federalists like John Adams and John Marshall and that fervent mercantilist Alexander Hamilton would be shocked by the state of our nation today. One of the most important lessons of the Revolution of 1800 was that when a nation has gone astray, it can be brought back to its senses with a revolution at the ballot box. Once again, we can see the connection between Jefferson and our time by recalling one of his most quoted sentences, the one that circles the dome of the Jefferson Monument in Washington, D.C., uttered in frustration over lies spread during the campaign by extreme religious factions, it stands as a remedy to a free society to rebut the allegations made in our time. Jefferson's rebuttal 200 years ago still stands. He says, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. The tyranny over the minds of men continues today to include that of the religious zealots, That's who Jefferson was speaking of, by the way, when he wrote those words. But to this faction has been added the factions of transnational corporations and billionaires. In some, our Congress is looking more like the high Federalist domination legislature of the eve of Jefferson's Revolution of 1800, paralyzed and polarized by factions within parties that ignore the vast majority of working people in the United States. In a very real sense, we are still confronting the choice between Hamilton's vision of society, an elitist government owned by the wealthy and bottomed on corruption, or Jefferson's, liberty, freedom, economic equality, and democracy in the interests of the common man. One is the illusion of freedom in a false democracy, 
The other is the promise of our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, and the Revolution of 1800. Revolution of 1800 by Dan Sisson and Tom. And welcome back. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? Well, I'm going to say this, Tom. Uh, Biden has basically gotten us out of Afghanistan, or almost has, because I think there's going to be some troops there in Kabul. Uh, Certainly better than the four years it took Nixon to get us out of Vietnam. Uh, Yeah, it was actually eight years. I mean, you know, Nixon didn't get us out of Vietnam. That was Jerry Ford who pulled us out of Vietnam. And and Nixon, when he was elected in, in 68, you know, his his pitch was that he had a secret plan to end the war. He, right. he blew remember. up LBJ's negotiations, as you, as you know. If you look, yeah, I know you listen to the program regularly. I play that clip all the time. Yes. Yeah, the April 1968 peace talks. Right. Uh, other than that, though, I, while, while you're doing your uh, um, mid-half-hour mid break there, I put on CNN, and they had this panel on. And they're just, you know, saying Biden's lying and all this and that. It was just really turning. Oop. Dennis just dropped. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing, you know, it happens sometimes people push their button. So Nancy in Elkhart, Indiana. Hey, Nancy, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. Um, I really have a question that I don't know if you could explain or other people, uh, but I hear a lot of the people asking um and other people asking why, uh, if people, um, if, if Biden hadn't started asking, uh, excuse me, hadn't started planning to uh, get people out back in February or March mm-hmm. or, you know, even in early spring, right. um, if not the plane started coming into the airport and getting people out, um, you know, all the, our helpers, wouldn't the Taliban have noticed this? and started killing people anyway? Well, they might, have, uh, they, they might have made it difficult, but the Taliban didn't control the country at that time. We, we basically held at least much of Afghanistan right up through the end of July. And, you know, the Biden administration uh, did reach out to Americans in Afghanistan and said, get the hell out. And as an earlier caller pointed out, a, a number of Americans said, no, we're going to stay here. Um, but that said, the State Department had this really rigorous criteria for who they were going to give these visas that would get them out of the country and into right. the United States. But, and they, like and you said, yeah, where do you draw they, the line? Right, right, they should have loosened that criteria. Well, and that's well, that's kind of what I was thinking. Is that even if they saw, it would seem to me that even if they started seeing, I know those visas were like I heard that on Rachel Maddow. Yeah. But if, it would seem to me even if uh, they had started seeing a pattern. They kind of would have kept these notes. Well, it's saying, hard to say. Hey, they might have wanted to here. get rid of the malcontents too. I, you know, it's it's hard to say exactly how the Taliban would have responded. But yeah. but I'm putting a lot of this on Anthony Blinken, the head of the State Department. He's our Secretary of State, and oh. the, the State Department should have loosened the the requirements for these special exit visas that uh, are being given to people who had worked with American forces. And because they didn't, I mean, they had this oh. list of eighty thousand people that the Taliban now has, and they are looking for these folks. And we should have gotten them out before now. 
It's just, in my so opinion, that, it's just that simple. I see. So they could have started it a long time ago and then at least had it in pro- progress. They could have started it in a much so more aggressive like a fashion. So much earlier, yeah. And of course, the Trump administration should have started this back, you know, a year and a half ago when they gave away Afghanistan to the Taliban. But they didn't do that. They had, you know, they did not, none of the type. Uh, because, you know, Donald Trump, it was just like, it's just like his deal with the vaccines. You know, hey, well, yeah, we'll write a check to start the vaccine production, Operation Warp Speed. Distribute them? Oh, no, that's work. Are you kidding? You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 